We are live. Welcome to the Creative Insider new live edition. Uh, this is going to be something new. It's going to be something different. We are going to do a live breakdown, a live reaction to the Bjorki Ingels TED Talks. Uh, it's going to be, <clears throat> we're going to start from the oldest TED Talks to see a little bit the evolution that happened throughout the years. And also, then we're going to move on to the newest one, and we're going to move to the latest one about space architecture and about uh, the plan for the planet. I'm doing this because I think... Uh, do you hear me, guys? Oops. So, now you should hear me. Um, I'm doing this because um, I wanted to do, um, to do something about this, um, to break down how an architect like Björk Ingels thinks, because I've spent a lot of time reading the books, learning about his process, his mental um, models, uh, how he does architecture. So we should detach from the idea of just the diagrams and the pictures and focus on what is behind the design process and the business. So let's go in uh, the different mode where we're going to be watching together. Um, so, I've opened in this window several TED Talks. Uh, this one is from 13 years ago. Uh, feel free to, to ask me questions or to interact with me in the live chat if you want to, um, I don't know, participate and um, just share your points. Um, so yeah, this is the first one. It's from uh, 13 years ago, probably the first TED talk that he ever uh, did. I'm gonna move it a little bit, um, <coughs> uh, a little bit forward, so that we'll avoid some music because I think uh, that might, this might strike anyways the YouTube video. But never mind. We're just gonna have fun tonight. It's not about monetization and shit like that. So let's start with the first Bjork Ingels um, TED Talk. You want the subtitles or you don't want the subtitles? Let me know in the, in the comments. So here we are. Great about architecture quite often and just uh, stays on contemplating the, the final result, the sort of the architectural object. And this sort of the, is, the, is the latest tower in London uh, a gherkin or a, a sausage or a sex tool? So, um, Recently, we asked ourselves if we could actually sort of invent a format that could actually tell the stories behind the projects, maybe combining images and drawings and words to actually sort of um, tell stories about architecture. Um, and we discovered that we didn't have to invent it. It, uh, it already existed in the form of a comic book. So we basically copied the format of the comic book to actually tell the stories of... So first of all, this is the first book. You might see here the Yes is More book. Uh, in my opinion, one of the best books of architecture because it's so simple uh, and you can read it through, I don't know, a couple of hours. But it's so the distillation of how the designs were conceived and how they were made. Uh, sorry, there's some problem with the microphone this night. So they are the... <coughs> These are like super distilled ideas about every single project. It's just a comic book. And it's so easy to spot like the single thought station throughout how they design every single of the first Bjorkingos projects. 
And this uh, book was, I think, something way revolutionary than the other two books that the company released officially. And they pissed a lot of the academics because it's a comic book. And usually the architecture books are whether these super fancy monographies or some super complicated written book that you barely understand what is written. And this was the complete opposite. And it was based on his idea that he wanted to be a comic book uh, writer, drawer, designer, and he turned that into architecture, creating this, in my opinion, very revolutionary book. So I can recommend the Yes is More book more than the other ones that have ever been released. Behind the scenes, how our <coughs> projects actually evolve through adaptation and improvisation, sort of to the turmoil and the opportunities and the sort of the incidents of the real world. We call this comic book Yes is More which is obviously a sort of evolution of the ideas of some of our heroes. In this case, it's Mies van Roo's Less is More. He triggered the modernist revolution. After him followed the postmodern counter-revolution, Robert Venturi saying, uh, less is a ball. After him, Philip Johnson sort of introduced, <laughs> you could say, promiscuity or at least openness to new ideas with I'm a whore. Recently, Obama has introduced optimism at a sort of time of global financial crisis. And what we'd like to say with Yes is More is basically trying to question this idea that the architectural avant-garde is almost always negatively defined as who or what we are against. Uh, the cliche of the radical architect is this sort of angry young man rebelling against the establishment, um, or this idea of the misunderstood genius frustrated that the world doesn't fit in with his or her ideas. Rather than revolution, we're much more interested in evolution, this idea that things gradually evolve by adapting and improvising to the, the, the changes of the world? Well, that's, that's one of the reasons why the early Björk Ingels got so much traction, especially among the students, because what to do, what is not done right, what you should follow the rules. And there is no acceptance, especially in my personal experience while studying at the university in, in Rome, there was this sort of like uh, distilled knowledge that the professor had and you had to accept it. And then he goes with something like this, saying that should be an evolution. There should be the acceptance of new ideas, saying yes to accepting the possibility of something that's slightly different. So I think that's a very good point. Also, yes is more. You should like say yes to something new instead of always focusing to what is the right thing to do. Casey Neistat, my one of my favorite YouTubers, says like <clears throat> there is. Um, there is one of his video. I think it's called "Do What You Can" or "Do What You Want." Um, maybe we can watch it later. But nobody knows what are the rules in nowadays world. Maybe I do this live and it's something cool, but maybe it sucks. Maybe someone else does some crazy TikToks and it's cool. And in the case of I don't know, 13 years ago, doing this book was something really cool. Just if you stick to the traditional rules. You won't accept it. You will be like pissed off at the book saying that it's an outrageous idea. But it's an evolution. That's it. So let's keep watching. In fact, I actually think that Darwin is uh, one of the people who best explains <coughs> our design process. His famous evolutionary tree could almost be a Darwin. This, I missed it, that he was so much into Darwin, but he called his son Darwin. So... I mean, he got to believe in these things. If you say he's just talking to sell his project, he wouldn't call his son Darwin. So just saying. ...diagram of the way we work. As you can see, a project evolves through a series of generations of design meetings. 
at each meeting, there's way too many ideas, only the best ones can survive. And through a process of sort of architectural selection, we might choose a really beautiful model, um, or we might sort of uh, have a very functional model. We mate to them, they have sort of mutant offspring. And through these sort of uh, generations of design meetings, we arrive at a design. A very literal way of showing it is a project we did for a library and a hotel in Copenhagen. Uh, the design process was like really tough, almost like a struggle for survival. But sort of gradually, an idea evolved. So I think, I, th I think that this concept of the evolution back then, it was just doing as many iterations as possible to deliver the best project. Because when you're a startup company, you don't have to, you don't have the team to um, to do as many iterations as you want, um, and um, you have to work hard to make way more variations. Um, you have to just put in the work, maybe put overwork over time in order to deliver the project to compete with your uh, competition because you're smaller, you're weaker, and so you have to outwork them. This sort of idea of a rational tower that melts together with the surrounding city, sort of expanding the public space onto what we refer to as a Scandinavian version of the Spanish steps in Rome but sort of public on the outside as well as on the inside with the library. But Darwin doesn't only explain the evolution of a single idea. As you can see, sometimes a subspecies branches off, and quite often we sit in a design meeting and we, and we discover that there's this great idea. It doesn't really work in this context, but for another client in another culture, it could really be the right answer to a, to a different question. So as a result, we never throw anything out. We keep our office almost like an archive of architectural biodiversity. So this is another concept that for me it's very valuable. Like mm, architecture, it's uh, um, a service business. So when you're doing the university where you're studying, uh, you think that every time you start a project, a new project, you have to start it from scratch. Otherwise, you're like faking your creativity or something like that. But and the reality is that there's, if you do as many options and evolutions and iterations as they did at Big, then you end up with this huge archive of options and models that are there sitting on a shelf. So maybe it's easier to, in order to, you know, um, take the fruits of your work to keep them like in your in your background and reuse them and not start from scratch every time but just start with something that's there that you have taught already and that fits to the next context so let's check it out you never know when you might need it and what i'd like to do now in a, in a sort of act of sort of warp speed storytelling is uh, is tell you the story of, of of how two projects evolved by adapting and sort of improvising to to the happenstance of the world the first story starts last year when we went to Shanghai to do the competition for the Danish National Pavilion for the World Expo in 2010. And we saw this guy, uh, Hai Bao. He's the mascot of the Expo. And, uh, and he looks strangely familiar. In fact, he looked like a building we had designed for um, a hotel in the north of Sweden. When we submitted it for the Swedish competition, we thought it was a really cool scheme, but it didn't exactly look like something from the north of Sweden. The Swedish jury didn't think so either, so we lost. But then we had a meeting with a Chinese businessman who saw our design and said sort of, wow, that's the Chinese character for the word people. Um, so, 
So I think in 2023, you wouldn't be allowed to make an imitation of an accent <laughs> of a, a Chinese man. But I mean, Bjorki had also a pretty much stronger accent back then than now after he had lived then several years in the States. Apparently, this is how you write people, as in the People's Republic of China. We even double-checked. And at the same time, we got invited to exhibit at the Shanghai Creative Industry Week. Um, so we thought, like, this is too much of an opportunity. So we hired a feng shui master. We scaled the building up three times to Chinese proportions um, and went to China. <laughs> so, so, yeah, this is a perfect example how you can get an idea that you had already done and repurpose it in a different, uh, in a different uh, way. And... Uh, it's great because back in the days they were a smaller company and then they needed to make some income. So why not sell it to super duper Chinese billionaire that wants to pay for it? So the people's building, as we called it, this is our two interpreters sort of reading the architecture. It went on the cover of the Wenhuibao newspaper, which got Mr. Lang Yu Chen, the mayor of Shanghai, to visit the exhibition. And we had the chance to explain the project. And he said, Shanghai is the city in the world with most uh, skyscrapers, but to him it was as if the connection to the roots had been cut over. Uh, and with the People's Building, he saw an architecture that could bridge the gap between the ancient wisdom of China and the progressive future of China. Um, so we obviously profoundly agree with him. Uh, uh. So when you present project, you should try to achieve this skill where you can make a joke because it's like connecting with the people it's like being honest like if you were if he was always serious and being like oh uh, yeah and we had a really great relationship with mr whatever and uh yeah we then finally got the deal so that would be super boring he drops a joke like we we agree with him like of course we agree with him clearly obviously so yeah um, unfortunately, Mr. Chen is now imprisoned for corruption. Um, <laughs> See, he, he caps it on a good level. Very good punchline. But, um, but like I said, Haibao looked very familiar because he is actually the Chinese character for people. And, uh, and they chose this mascot because the theme of the, of the expo is better city, better life, sustainability. And we thought like sustainability has grown into being this sort of neo-Protestant idea that you know it has to hurt in order to do good. You know, um, you're not supposed to take long warm showers. Uh, you know, uh, you're not supposed to fly on holiday. Yeah, let's this see what he's going to say. Because uh, gradually you get this idea that sustainable life is less fun than normal life. So we thought that maybe it could be interesting to focus on examples where a sustainable city actually increases the quality of life. We also asked. So this is a fundamental idea. This is what he later on called um, hedonistic sustainability, uh, which again, some people are going to say it's selling. Everything is selling in this life. Everything is like trying to pitch a project. I mean, he's an architect. Every architect wants to make, to make a project. Um, hedonistic sustainability is something that I agree a lot with because if you go to people and start screaming at them and saying, I don't know, stop driving your car and you're killing the planet and then you glue yourself on the asphalt and don't let people drive. You just get them to be your enemy. You don't get them to be your friend that wants to join you in your battle and in your fight for saving the planet. And uh, for example, 
I mean, this is going to be something probably polarizing, but I was a big fan of Greta Thunberg until she didn't do that stunt with the, uh, with the boat across the ocean and arriving in New York. I mean, this is something that you cannot relate with because it's something so much different than I could ever afford. Uh, or any, or most of the people could afford. So they say, well, you know, Greta, I understand you, but I want to live my life, and so leave me alone. But if you make something like that it's sustainable, example, that's Tesla. Like, you wouldn't want to have a shitty electric car, but if you make the electric car cool, full of features that other cars barely can ever achieve then the car gets popular and people love it and people want to buy it and people want to have one and it's become like a status you know, like you're showing that you're part of the cool kids that are saving the planet not just like being some i don't know lame activist um and this is going to be again i know it's going to be like polarizing i don't want to offend anyone every we need everyone because of course the activists create awareness but like, come on, you have to focus on people joining the team. And this it's the concept that he's explaining, hedonistic sustainability. Make the building better. Explain the developer that if you, he makes the building better, once the life cycle is over, he can sell the materials. He makes money out of it. The people living inside, they will pay lower bills. So that's hedonistic sustainability. Let's see which projects he's going to explain. Said, what could Denmark possibly show China that would be relevant? You know, it's one of the biggest countries in the world, one of the smallest. China symbolized by the dragon. In Denmark, we have a national bird, the swan. Um, <laughs> China has many great poets, but we discovered that in the People's Republic public school curriculum, they have three fairy tales by Antushun, or Hans Christian Andersen, as we call him. So that means that all 1.3 billion Chinese have grown up with uh, the Empress New Clothes, the Matchstick Girl, and the Little Mermaid. It's, it's almost like a fragment of Danish culture integrated into Chinese culture. The biggest tourist attraction in China is the Great Wall. The Great Wall. So one thing that also um, Kai-Uwe Bergman said on the podcast when he was a guest, if, if you haven't watched that one, you can watch it, is that in order to be successful around the globe, you have to really connect to the local culture. So I guess here we have one of the first examples where he studied what is the relationship between China and Denmark, what is the, the particular uh, way of Chinese culture so that he can understand what these people can relate to so that he can make a project that they will connect to. Well, it's the only thing that can be seen from the moon. The biggest tourist attraction in Denmark is the Little Mermaid that can actually hardly be seen from the canal tours. Um, and it's, it sort of shows that... It's super small. When I was there last year, it was super small. You, like, it's not in... Wow, here it's super zoomed in to make it look bigger. The difference between the two cities, Copenhagen, Shanghai, modern, European. But then we looked at recent urban development... And we noticed that the, this is like a Shanghai street 30 years ago, all bikes, no cars. This is how it looks today, all traffic jam, bicycles have become forbidden in many places. Meanwhile, in Copenhagen, we're actually expanding the bicycle lanes. A third of all the people commute by bike. We have a free system of bicycles called the city bike that you can borrow if you visit the city. So we thought, like, why don't we reintroduce the bicycle in China? We donate a thousand bikes to Shanghai. And see here, it's what happened. He figured out what is one typical thing that connects the two countries, the bicycle. One, it's nowadays 
One was in the past. Now the bicycle is the symbol of Copenhagen. In the past was the symbol of Shanghai. If you come to the expo, go straight to the Danish pavilion. Get it. And here you can see the architectonic language of this pavilion. It's way different than something else that they've done because for the expo, it needs to be something spectacular, something catchy. So it's this sort of a spiral. Danish bike and then continue on that to visit the other pavilions. Like I said, Shanghai and Copenhagen are both port cities. But in Copenhagen, the water has gotten so clean that you can actually swim in it. One of the first projects we ever did was the harbor bath in Copenhagen, sort of continuing the public realm into the water. So we thought that these expos quite often have like a lot of sort of state finance propaganda, images, statements, but no real experience. So just like with the bike, we don't talk about it, you can try it. Like with the water, instead of talking about it, we're going to sail a million liters of harbor water from Copenhagen to Shanghai. So the Chinese who have the courage can actually dive in and feel... Yeah, that's not really sustainable to ship water to China, but I guess it was fun to do. And the Danish government wanted to do it or whoever association it's financing the pavilion. How clean it is. This is but again, maybe if you want to make the Chinese more sensitive about water pollution, maybe it's also a good idea so they can jump into clean harbor water. I don't know. What is your opinion? where people normally object that it doesn't sound very sustainable to sail water from Copenhagen to, uh, to China. But in fact, the goods, they, like the container ships go full of goods from China to Denmark, and then they sail empty back. So quite often you load water for ballast, so we can actually hitch a ride for free. And in the middle of this sort of harbor bath, we're actually going to put the actual Little Mermaid. So, the so basically this is even before they ever made this thing happen because they're just running. They say, he's saying, I'm going to do it. We're going to do it. The real mermaid, the real water and the real bikes. And when she's gone, we're going to invite a Chinese artist to reinterpret her. The architecture of the pavilion is this sort of loop of exhibition and bikes. When you go to the exhibition, you'll see the mermaid in the pool. You'll walk around, start looking for a bicycle on the roof, jump on your ride and then uh, continue out. It's super funny to see how bad were the renderings back then. Like they probably they didn't have enough money to make their like render to pay a company to make the renderings. So you can clearly see they did it what whatever tools they had back in the days. Probably some Photoshop and just putting stuff here and there. But it's like here it doesn't have to be something super fancy nowadays either. You can do something like this. It has to be just a cool project. Out into the rest of the expo. So when we actually won... And I love the style they had back then. There was something similar, like it looks like more Luxigonish uh, from back then. Like this very, I don't know, it looks very punk, very different, very, very like eye-catchy. It's not so clean as it has gotten nowadays. Competition. We had to do an exhibition in China explaining the project. And to our surprise, we got one of our boards back with corrections from the Chinese state censorship. The first thing, the China map missed Taiwan. It's a very serious political issue in China. We will add on. The second thing, we had compared the swan to the dragon, and then the Chinese state said, suggest change to panda. <laughs> See, he kept doing like jokes. <laughs> so uh, when it came out in Denmark that we were actually going to move our national monument, the, the National People's Party sort of... Uh, uh, rebelled against it. They tried to pass a law against moving the mermaid. Um, so for the first time, I got invited to speak at the national parliament. 
It was kind of interesting because like in the morning from 9 to 11, they were discussing the bailout package, how, how many billions to invest in saving the Danish economy. And then at 11 o'clock, they stopped talking about these little issues. And then from 11 to 1, they were debating whether or not to send the murder. So he has a sense of humor, and that's something that really has helped him in these presentations. But the problem is that he does always the same jokes. So if you've watched one of these talks, if he will expose the same projects, he'll do the same jokes. And that's... I understand, I get it, you cannot do a different presentation every time. Uh, but uh, And also the outfit, like look with this comic book uh, cloud uh, on his t-shirt. I think it's really, it's like very, you can see that the brand big, it's really his personality that he likes to make jokes. Like also like the website big.dk, come on, it's like, it's funny. So he's he likes to make like, this a little controversial joke. Mermaids to China. Um, but uh, to conclude, if you want to see the mermaid from May to December next year, don't come to Copenhagen because she's going to be in Shanghai. If you do come to Copenhagen, you will probably see an installation by Ai Weiwei, the Chinese artist. But if the Chinese government intervenes, it might even be a panda. <laughs> So um, the second story that I that I like to and then he ended up doing the panda house in the Copenhagen Zoo. So back in the days was destiny to be connected with pandas. It's, um, actually starts uh, in my own house. This is my apartment. This is the view from my apartment over this sort of landscape of triangular balconies that uh, our client. So this is a project I visited last year. So let's check it out. How, he, because back in the days this was like something very different again, very innovative. Client called the Leonardo DiCaprio balcony. So if you look later, um, let's and, check uh, out if he shows other images. They form this sort of a vertical backyard where on a nice summer day you'll actually get introduced to all your neighbors in a vertical radius of ten meters. The house is sort of a distortion of a square block, trying. To Mm, so this image looks quite pixelated. Let's see if it can look a little better. I don't know why it looks so sucky. Um, but if you see in the surrounding, there is basically nothing. Uh, it's completely empty. So they could do this crazy design. I get to make sure that all the apartments look at the straight views instead of into each other. Until recently, this was the view from my apartment onto this place where our client actually bought. So the thing with the VM house is what is the concept? He did a lot of, uh, he got inspired by the Le Corpusier Unité d'Habitation. So he did a lot of duplexes. But what he did is taking an existing concept, an existing design, break it into the V and the M so that you don't have two parallel blocks that look in, into each other, but you have all through this um, shapes you have like many views uh, he did the balconies that are crazy the whole building is completely out of glass and metal and some wood and it looks so much different than anything else you see in Copenhagen and I compare these first VM houses to what is nowadays the Cybertruck they didn't do the Cybertruck that way because it's pretty or because it, there is no really engineering reason for doing it this way exactly. They just did it in a different way, so it's completely different from what is out there. So it doesn't compete with the with the I don't know the Ford or the Rams or 
So they did a completely different design. So it's his own icon. And I think this project made by Plot, which is now big in JDS, was made this way on purpose to be different than everything else. The neighbor side, and he said that he was going to do an apartment block next to a parking structure. And we thought, like, rather than doing like a traditional stack of apartments looking straight into a big, boring block of cars, why don't we actually turn all the apartments into penthouses, put them on a podium of cars? And because Copenhagen is completely flat, if you want to have a nice south-facing slope with a view, you basically have to do it yourself. Um, then we sort of cut up the volume so we wouldn't block the view from my apartment. Um, <laughs> And uh, essentially, the parking is sort of occupying the deep space underneath the... So this is actually something that I saw in another, in another video, in another, one of his first conference lectures at the university, where he was showing his thesis, his graduation thesis, and it's so funny, because in his thesis, he combined a residential building with a sport, uh, sports hall. I think it was a basketball hall, or volleyball hall, some, some sports activity. So he put the big uh, room volume of the sports hall, and on top of it, he stuck residential buildings. That was his master thesis. Uh, he, actually, according to his own words, he didn't get a great mark for it, but he did what he wanted to do. Um, so... This project, it's like, if you didn't know, I didn't know this, but once you see his background, you think, oh, this makes total sense that he has uh, a plot that where he needs to combine a parking lot with residential, he'll find this day, because I don't know, they were plot back in the day, so Julianne de Schmidt pl play a role for sure. The apartments, and up in the sun, you have like a single layer of apartments, that combines sort of all the splendors of a suburban lifestyle, like a, a house with a garden, with a, a sort of metropolitan view, and a sort of dense urban location. So this is our first architectural model. This is an aerial photo taken last summer. So uh, let me go a frame back. So this like is a, a diagram. A house with a garden, with a, a sort of metropolitan view, and a sort of dense urban location. So yeah, so here you can see that this also works because he keeps like having nice views the two houses everything around was empty like if you go nowadays in the area there are a lot of um, there are a lot of oh, goddamn this microphone today um <clears throat> if you go nowadays there are a lot of different buildings that look quite traditional and quite similar to what you see around the city but in this particular case those buildings are popping out and back in the days it was empty, so you could do all this crazy stuff. And because there was nothing around, nobody would tell you, oh, you have to respect the existing buildings because it was just a city, city empty, empty space where the city was growing. So I think it's great. Uh, Irgen in the comments is saying, nice to see your interpretation. I hope to see this series and live stream about other architects or even contemporary artists. I'm not so familiar with artists. You can suggest some artists. But yeah, for sure, we're going to do that about other architects and see if um, if um, how they approach architecture. Because this is one approach on architecture, but they are different approach. I appreciate Bjork Ingels, especially the early one, especially the one from Yes Is More. Because I think if you learn that approach, even if you're not a mastermind, 
if you're not a genius, if you apply those principles, you can still achieve great results and great architecture that works and that's striking and that's going to be original. Because other architects, they're more like the fruit of a genius. But we're going to do other things. I think the next one is going to be Dan Stubegard from Kobe. But let's finish with this one first. So this is our first architectural model. This is an aerial photo taken last summer. And essentially, the apartments cover the parking. They're accessed through this diagonal elevator. It's actually a standard product from Switzerland, because in Switzerland, they have a natural need for diagonal elevators. Uh, so this is very important, what he's saying here. He's saying that you, you can do it, and you can do it with standard solutions. Because if he, they needed to develop a whole new elevator for this project, it would have been unpayable, because it's going to be too expensive. But if you do it with, he says, in Switzerland, they have this elevator. So, yeah, you can do it. It's just make it, deliver it from Switzerland and go for it. Um, and, uh, and the facade of the parking, we wanted to make the... Also, I think the idea of making colorful floors, it's so simple and so effective because you don't need to remember the number of your apartment or of your parking spot, you just remember the color. Parking naturally ventilated, so we needed to perforate it. And we discovered that by controlling the size of the holes... This is cute because this was probably one of the first uh, projects where you could uh, see and see metal cladding and do pictures. Nowadays, it's kind of obvious. It's nothing new anymore. We could actually turn the entire facade into a gigantic, naturally ventilated, rasterized image. And since we always refer to the project as the mountain, we commissioned this Japanese Himalaya photographer to give us this beautiful photo of Mount Everest, making the entire building a 3,000 square meter artwork. <laughs> Since then, they did so many other mountains that I don't know if this project is worth the name mountain still, but it's okay. It's still a mountain, let's say. So. So if you go back into the parking, into the corridors, it's almost like traveling into a parallel universe from cars and colors into this sort of south-facing urban oasis. The wood of your apartment continues outside, becoming the facades. If you go even further, it sort of turns into this green garden. And all the rainwater that drops on the mountain is actually accumulated, and there's a... So if you go nowadays, it's much more greener because everything has grown. And now it's, I don't know, if this was built 15 years ago, probably, if this is a 13 years old video, it has aged very well. Like the metal cladding, it's still very good, no rust, because I think it's, um, I mean, it's, I don't know what is the English term for it, but it's, um, it's very well worked, so there is no rust. And um, the wood... The wood, it's okay. It's not so bad. I mean, it's it, it gets textures. It gets grayish, I guess, through the light, through the sun. But it looks really well. If you go in the area and see uh, buildings of the similar age, they have aged way worse. The automatic irrigation system that makes sure that this sort of landscape of gardens in one or two years would transform into sort of a Cambodian temple ruin completely covered in green. So the mountain is like our first built example of what we like to refer to. Yeah, these small houses. I mean, on these small houses are still there, but on the other side, there are way more building. This whole 
background this whole area it's completely built up with other things you can you can check the um, visit like an architect copenhagen series and there is a video a vlog of us going to these buildings and showing you some details as architectural alchemy this idea that you can actually create if not goals then at least added value by mixing traditional ingredients like normal apartments and, and normal parking and in this case actually offer people the, the chance that they don't have to, to choose between a life with a garden or a life in the city. They can actually have both. See, this is hedonistic sustainability, and it's something passive. You just combine the functions in a different way. And people think this thing is cool. And your client will be happy because in this setup, in this building, he'll be able to sell every single apartment. No problem, because every single apartment has... South orientation, perfect light, a garden, a terrace. You don't have to be on the ground floor, on the fifth floor, on the sixth floor. Everything's way more well organized. And actually, you wouldn't mind if you live in the middle, in the bottom, or in the top part of this building. As an, as an architect, it's really hard to set the agenda. You can't just say that now I'd like to do a sustainable city in Central Asia. Because that's not really how you get the commissions. Um, you always have to sort of adapt and improvise to, uh, to the opportunities and accidents that happen. This is also something very important to me. Like, if you're an activist as an architect, you never get, like, to me, there is some high moral ground. So I'm against doing the line in the desert in Saudi Arabia where it makes no sense the way it's done. But... You have to convince the architects, uh, you have to convince the developers that your design is valuable to them. And because in the end of the day, what matters to the developers is to make money. So whether it's the design of the building itself, but with these solutions, he's, in my opinion, enormously aumenting the value of the property. And in, in the sort of turmoil of the world. Um, and so because he wants to get um, commissions, he has to end up to the request of a ruthless, maybe, developer by providing the best possible solution for that context. One last example is that recently we, or like, like last summer, we won the competition to design um, a Nordic national bank. This was the director of the bank when he was still smiling. <laughs> so yeah, dropping the jokes is really important and the renderings are super nice to see. Um, it was in the middle of the capital, so we were really excited by this opportunity. Unfortunately, it was the National Bank of Iceland. Um, at the same time, we actually had a visitor, uh, a minister from Azerbaijan came to our office. We took him to see the mountain and he got very excited uh, by this idea that you could actually make mountains out of architecture. Because Azerbaijan is known as the Alps of Central Asia. So he asked us if we could actually imagine uh, an urban master plan on an island outside the capital. Yeah, so if Iceland, Iceland go down and Azerbaijan wants the crazy, crazy island with mountains, you go for that. That would recreate the silhouette of the seven most significant mountains of Azerbaijan. Um, so we took the, the commission uh, and we made this small movie that I'd like to show. We quite often make little movies. Uh, we always argue a lot about the soundtrack. But in this case, it was really easy to, to choose. The yeah, I'm not going to play the soundtrack of the Azerbaijan movie because um, unfortunately it will be striked by, by the algorithm of YouTube. Uh, 
but yeah, let's see what is the movie, the Zerbrijani flag, the seven main mountains. Uh, these are how they look like. They put them on the island. And now it looks like the coldest skyline. Uh, let's see if there is... Okay, there was still music. So he gave me the concept, the movie, the mountain. Well, this is not looking great, let's be honest. But they had to make money. It was the crisis 2008. So they went there and did this. And they had to. So, yeah. People are happy. Bjork is happy. He dropped his first that talk, and he's cool. You can see how the the mountain in Copenhagen sort of evolved into the seven peaks of Azerbaijan, and uh, uh, with a little luck uh, and um, some more evolution, maybe in ten years it could be the the five mountains of, on Mars. Thank you. Oh. <laughs> see, he said that thirteen years ago, and now they're really doing it. Uh, Let's see. Oof. See? Oh. 